0: This morning, our scripture reading comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, "The Lord needs it." Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, "Why are you untying the colt?" They replied, "The Lord needs it." They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The word of the Lord.
1: A couple of years ago, I was part of a community. I worked at a community in Northern California called Open Door. And Open Door had this expression that they used, and the expression went like this, we want to be a people who learn how to listen longer than feels comfortable. And I've, I love that, that statement, learn to listen longer than feels comfortable. And, and this morning, I'm going to ask you to learn how to listen longer than feels comfortable, because we're going to talk about some things that will make you uncomfortable. So welcome to Evergreen good to see you this morning. We've been uh, situated in Luke chapter, uh, Luke's gospel through our lectionary up leading to Easter Sunday in our celebration. And I've asked us to consider taking up Luke chapter 4 as a lens, a way to interpret what Jesus was doing, why he came, how he was proclaiming and what he was demonstrating. And in Luke chapter 4, there's this expression that Jesus used, I've come to declare the year of the Lord's favor. And then he goes on to describe what that looks like. Good news to the poor, to set prisoners free, to set the oppressed free, to help the blind to see. And then at story after story, we see D- Jesus demonstrating why he came. I want to step back in the narrative once again before we address the text that was read today. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus goes on and continues to give reason as to why he came and what he was about to do, And he says in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Now, it's very clear there. I must proclaim good news, the good news of the kingdom of God, for that is why I came. Now, the fact that he calls it good news... Causes me to pause for a moment and go, okay, if it's good news, and it's got to be good news for everyone, because this is a public proclamation. This isn't Jesus just talking to a few select people. When somebody declared good news, it was always done in a public venue. Everyone would have heard this announcement. The good news of the kingdom of God is here. Question that I ask, okay, if this is good news, then why are the religious leaders not receiving this as good news, but as a threat? What is it about Jesus' statement that caused them to go, this does not sound like good news to us? Now, it's important to keep in mind, as you are reading through the gospel narratives in particular, that the gospel reminds us over and over again that God's people were under Roman occupation at this point in their history. And if you go back in God's bigger story, ever since 586 B.C., God's people kept finding themselves under the rule and reign of one superpower after another. You had the Assyrians, you have the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And as you can imagine, the Jewish people had very strong feelings about their enemies We're sick of these Romans who are ruling and reigning and oppressing us. These Romans worship false gods, all kinds of gods, and yet they seem to be the ones who are getting blessed. They're the ones who are in power. Imagine what this would do to your psyche as a follower, a faithful follower of Yahweh. Imagine what this would do to your collective psyche as a people, how difficult it would be to put those things together in your own Reality. Questions like When is God going to deliver us? When is God going to send us a deliverer, this long awaited deliverer that we continue to pray for and ask for? We keep believing that God is on our side, but it doesn't seem like God is on our side. It seems like we're the ones always under the boot of oppression. Now imagine this with me. This man, Jesus, shows up on the scene, makes this announcement about good news, and he says, The kingdom of God is here. Now, The way in which they might have heard that, let me put it in our context for a moment, it might have sounded like this. The empire of God is now here. Repent and believe. Let's all return back to God's design for how things really should be. However... Jesus' idea of God ruling and reigning didn't align with the religious ruling class's idea of God ruling and reigning. Jesus' idea of God ruling and reigning sounded like this. Let's return back to where justice is being done for the oppressed, where love wins, where peace comes through nonviolence, and we are always working towards reconciliation with all people, especially our enemies and even the enemies of our nation. Now, does that sound like good news? Forgiveness is a neat concept until we actually have to practice forgiveness. It's a nice idea. And Jesus doesn't seem to be the kind of deliverer that the people had been longing for. So the alignment wasn't there in how people envisioned Jesus coming in to rule and reign. And then here in Luke chapter 19, we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, the Mecca, the house of God, on a donkey, a, a, a total posture of humility, perceived weakness, coming in peace, and he's not riding on a war horse. He's riding on a donkey. And then the religious leaders start to hear the chanting of this Jesus, blessed is as the king who's come in the name of the Lord. And then the Pharisees tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Tell them to shut it. And Jesus says, if, I, if they shut it, the rocks are going to cry out, and my people just can't be beat out by a bunch of rocks. They have to make this declaration of praise because of who I am and what I'm coming to do and what I am bringing into Jerusalem. So go back to the question for a moment. If this is good news, why is it that the religious ruling class didn't hear it as good news? I want to give you four different sects of Judaism that were present during the time that you can read throughout all of the gospel narratives. And I think if you could possibly identify with one of these groups that I'm going to mention, you might start to go, oh, that's why they weren't hearing this as good news, and why there was such a tendency for them to reject Jesus as Israel's true king. So here we go. You ready? Engage with me for a moment. Group number one were called the zealots. Now the zealots, um, it is believed that one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot, Simon, who was referred to as what? Simon the zealot. There's our clue, our indicator, that he might have been a zealot. Zealots believed that the Jews were being oppressed because they were too passive. They weren't being strong enough. They lacked courage. So what they, they sought to do is get as many people together as possible to rise up, and rebel against the superpower that they were being oppressed by. If God is on our side, then what do we have to lose? And you can see how one would arrive at this conclusion based on how you read and interpret the scripture. Throughout their history, God had always been on their side. That's what they proclaimed as people. So if God is on our side, and he man, if you look at the past, God had led so many of our people at different points in history through amazing battles and had always delivered them. So according to our understanding of the scriptures, this has got to be how God is going to do things. And yet we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem. This is his chance on a donkey? Really? So the Zealots, that's how they might have perceived Jesus. Group number two are called the Herodians. This is another sect of Judaism. The Herodians were supporters of the puppet master Herod. And they joined forces with a religious party called the Sadducees. And of course, the Herodians and the Sadducees thought that the Zealots had it all wrong. They weren't enlightened. That sect of Judaism is completely off base. The Herodians were just trying to be practical. After all, if you rise up against Rome, they're just gonna crush you. So why would you wanna rise up and rebel against this superpower? Just kinda go with the flow You've got to learn how to play the political game, even though the politics of that day were morally bankrupt. You've got to align, pick a party, and go with it. That's how you bring peace on earth. Now, both groups thought the other was an unenlightened group. I know this isn't how things play out today, but you can see this happening in these different sects. So the third sect was referred to as the Essenes. Scholars believe that John the Baptist came from this particular sect, the Essenes. They believed that the only way to please God was to leave the corrupt religious and political systems behind and then create an alternative society out in the desert. So move away from culture, move away from politics, move away from religious institutions, move out into the desert, read the scriptures, be devout in your pursuit of God. So the Essenes believed that they wanted to keep themselves from evil. They were completely devout in their faith. They were all about fasting and prayer, doing what the Bible actually said. We just read it and we do what it said. So each group, according to the other, had it wrong. One group's got it right. The other two have got it wrong. We move to group number four, the Pharisees. Oh, yes, the Pharisees. Now, they believed that obeying the Torah to the T was all about purity law codes. So the the purity um, pursuit of what it meant to be a follower of God was a big deal. And if we do this, if we uphold the law, God will then respond by sending us a deliverer. If there's too much sin, then God won't respond. So we've got to eradicate sin from the whole system. Now, I see all four of these groups still operating today in what we might call evangelicalism in America. You still kind of see these bents happening in people. Now, imagine this. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem at this point in history makes this announcement that the good news of the kingdom of God has arrived. A new king has arrived right in the middle of an already existing kingdom. Now, when someone shows up and makes a public proclamation that the kingdom of God here in an already established kingdom, that, my friends, is called inflammatory language. You don't say something like that and then expect everything to go well for you. It's a system. The Zealots, the Herodians, the Essenes, the Pharisees, all would have heard this proclamation. All would have interpreted it through their particular lens. So question, what if you're a Pharisee? What if you identify with this group? And you start to think to yourself, okay, finally, our piety has paid off. Finally, finally, we've been good enough to where God is now going to send us a deliverer And so you as a group of Pharisees, you get together and you hear about this Messiah that's coming to the scene and you're thinking to yourself, we've got to go see this guy. So they gather up and they hear that Jesus is actually at a wedding. So they're like, he's at a wedding. Let's go to the wedding. And as they approach the wedding, they hear music, they hear dancing, they hear laughter. They see Jesus making wine and making a lot of wine. And people are getting sloshed. And there's drunkards and there's prostitutes and there's all these people at this wedding that is a good follower of Jesus, you're like going, wait a minute, this can't be the person that God had sent. And then you see Jesus with a Samaritan. And according to the biblical tradition and the Jewish idea of the Samaritans, they weren't even considered human. The image of God didn't dwell in them. And here's Jesus interacting with Samaritans. I thought that God's deliverer would have to be like us. And in fact, he's not like us. Hmm. So then he's got to be a zealot, right? That's exactly what he's got to be. The Pharisees got it wrong. So the zealots get together and they think, okay, let's get together with Israel's new king and let's go slit some throats. God's on our side. We got to get Rome out of, out of power and get reestablished back in the center. Let's see what God does through this deliverer. And so they follow Jesus, and they see Jesus gathering up all these peasants and immigrants and people on the outside thinking like, okay, this is how you're going to do a battle? Get them gritty. We're going to go after the people. And Jesus brings up this mass multitude on a mountainside, a hillside. And he starts to give his kingdom manifesto. And they're thinking, oh, this is going to be awesome. And Jesus starts to preach his manifesto. And what does he say? Oh, blessed are the poor, the meek the persecuted, those who decide to make peace with great acts of love and sacrifice, people who practice radical forgiveness, who turn the other cheek, who take up their cross and follow me, and then to tie it off, once again, they see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, the Mecca on a donkey and not on a war horse. So he can't be a zealot. Shoot, he's not like us. Hmm. well he's got to be in a scene right? He's got to be in a scene and when you look at Jesus and how he's interacting he's clearly not in a scene because he's right in the middle of culture he's talking to all kinds of people he's like right in the heart of it all and he can't be a Herodian because he made this inflammatory statement that the kingdom of God is here so if our deliverer doesn't look anything like us then who is this Jesus? where does he fit? who is he? he's got to be like us right he's got to be on our side as i was wrestling through just really wrestling through luke's entire narrative through our journey and thinking about the haunting question that keeps coming up inside of me you see i've been part of the the church and the evangelical church my entire life 52 years and i keep coming back to this haunting question does the evangelical church in America look anything like Jesus today? And it's a haunting question inside of me because I'm part of it. And I've got, I want to be candid with you for a moment. I, I hold a degree of fear about letting my neighbors in Seattle know what I do for a living. Because of all that comes with this idea of being an evangelical in America today. And where we've chosen to align ourselves and the things that we've chosen to contribute to. And I think, I'm part of that. And do I have the courage to face that and actually reform some of that? Do I have the courage to speak out against the injustices that I see happening in the world today? And do I, as a follower of Jesus, remain silent or do I speak up? I see my king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's a peaceful protest and I, I like to think of Palm Sunday as an example of what a protest actually looks like. And I stepped back for a moment, and I thought, man, Palm Sunday, in my opinion, could be one of the most important holidays in the Christian church in the world. And yet it's not a holiday that we typically set aside and say, this is a big one. We always kind of wait for Easter. That's, that's the big one, and Easter is a big one. But Palm Sunday, I wonder what it would look like if we were to elevate Palm Sunday as one of the most important holidays that we celebrate as Jesus' followers. And to think, all Jesus' followers across the world. What if all Jesus' followers across the world gathered together and did what we call a peaceful protest march on Palm Sunday throughout the world? Ushering in peace, not through violence, but ushering peace into the world through radical love, forgiveness, and actually living out Jesus' manifesto in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. I wonder what it would look like for us as Jesus' followers to march against corrupt systems of power. And then I read on in the text and I see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, weeping over the reality of what was to come because the people... The Jewish people couldn't let go of their ideas. They wanted to align and fight against Rome. And what actually happened was they were destroyed in the future. And Jesus kept predicting, if you continue on this path, it will lead to your destruction. And sure enough, it did. And Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. And I thought to myself, as I see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, do I have the courage to weep over the state of the evangelical church today? Do I have the courage as a Jesus follower to weep over the current state of the church in Seattle? Do I have the courage to weep over the current state of the church on Mercer Island? I hope and pray, friends, that our goal is not just to be known as a conservative evangelical church on Mercer Island, but to be known as a deeply compassionate church where we are moved by the compassion of Jesus. There was a great rabbi by the name of Hillel who was believed to be the older contemporary teacher of Jesus. And one day, a pagan came to Rabbi Hillel and said this, if you can recite the whole of Jewish teaching while standing on one leg, I will convert to Judaism. Judaism. Hillel stood on one leg and said, that which is hateful to you do not do to your neighbor. That is the Torah. The rest is commentary. According to this rabbi, every single word of the Torah is commentary to the golden rule. How would I interpret that? This is how I hear it. Any interpretation Of scripture which leads to hatred disdain or contempt of other people is illegitimate in my opinion friends we cannot confine our compassion to our own group to our own nation to our own religion because that's not good news it must be for everyone we are not only commanded to love our neighbor but we are commanded to love our enemies. And I am afraid that what I am seeing in the church today, and in particular as evangelicals here in America, is we are more concerned with being right than with behaving with compassion. I want to commit myself to compassion. I want Evergreen Covenant Church to commit ourselves to compassion. That we would be cultivators of compassion. Compassion to practice compassion together. I want to read a statement that was sent out from our denominational leaders this last week, and I had posted it on Facebook on our church site. But I want you to hear this, because I think this requires a great deal of courage and practice as a people, but this is coming from the Covenant Church As a country, we've all witnessed over the last couple of weeks horrendous acts of violence. We witnessed, once again, a mass shooting in Colorado. We witnessed racial terror of eight murders that happened in Atlanta. And while we are walking through this aftermath, we must address as members of a multi-ethnic diverse body of Christ that we are committed to biblical justice. They go on to say, as we enter Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, the whole church is being invited to listen and learn from how the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, especially women, are responding and leading us all forward. This was not just a singular event whose impact has evaporated even as the news moves on to a new timely things to focus on, This was a pivotal violent act that has and will cause deep repercussions for many of our own church family. To minimize, not see, not respond deeply to the particular pain of our AAPI family is in fact part of the grief that event surfaces for many. As members of our own body lament, grieve, and speak out, These AAPI leaders are affirming the dignity of AAPI lives and centering their stories to minister to their community in specific and needed ways. Their leadership also helps the wider church see and understand more deeply the historic and present pain that the Atlanta murders are related to. Injustices such as violent racism, misogyny, sexualizing AAPI women, and and our own whiteness thriving within the white church. We need sustained prayer, attention, and action to address those ongoing gaps and to focus our discipleship around the kingdom of God's response. To our AAPI leaders, especially AAPI women in trauma in this season, we see you, we hear you, and we value your lives, your voices, your stories, your pain, and your strength. We are one body, And we see this historic and ongoing burden that you so promptly hold. We are with you, we are for you. We will persist in doing our own work of confession and repentance, knowing that we have not seen or seen wrongly in perpetuating a gaze which furthers invisibility, misogyny, microaggression, dehumanization, and intersectional hate. To the rest of the church, we're invited to hear, see, respond, pray, lament, confess, care well advocate and walk alongside our sisters and brothers of this time. There's a a vigil that's happening today at 1 p.m. It's being hosted by Quest Church here in Seattle. And Tim, would you throw up that first slide as a way for us to participate? It's called the Asian American Christian Collaborative. You can go to that website, and if you're watching at home, I encourage you to clip onto that, and you can participate today at 1 p.m., online. There are also other incredible resources attached to that website, and if you go to the next slide, you'll see the invitation that Seattle Christians are called to stand up for AAPI lives and dignity in conjunction with Atlanta and the other cities who have been affected. Today at 1 p.m., a virtual gathering of Christians and churches. I encourage you as a next step to go to the website, look at it, Ask the Holy Spirit how the Holy Spirit would like us to respond. Let's be a people who cultivate compassion. Compassion for all. Not just people who are like us, but people whose voices have been silenced, who have been quieted. Let's be a people who march, who protest, who stand alongside those who are being persecuted because that is the way of Jesus, my friends. The kingdom of God is here. It's good news for everyone.